the bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. And this hour, my guest is Ted Krager, uh, who is known as the Mortgage Advocate. Welcome to the show, Ted. Thank you very much. Let's start with a little bit of your background uh, before we get into uh, what you're talking about on the whole mortgage and real estate businesses. Give us a little bit of your background and your expertise here. I've spent about 25 years in financial services and the last 15 years in uh, mortgage banking. And, and uh, why did you, you you did a uh, an, an ebook that's come out recently called "Dirty Little Money Secrets of the Mortgage Industry"? Why did you feel it was necessary to uh, create this ebook? Uh, I'm sure you've read newspapers and watched the TV over the last year and seen the uh, meltdown in financial services, and a lot of that had to do with uh, things that I think can be avoided from going forward. So it, it sounds like you have a passion for protecting consumers against the uh, the mortgage industry. Is that the way you see it? Well, I was in the industry for a long time and uh, retired about a year ago, and you know, I guess I got out while the getting was good, so to speak. Had no idea what was coming, but um, there were just a lot of abuses. And uh, you know, uh, you, you remember the old Michael Douglas movie Wall Street in his famous "Greed is Good" speech? Yes. Uh, I don't happen to agree with that. Let's just put it that way. And you think there's been a lot of greed in the mortgage business, then? I think, without question. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well. Um... Before we get into the details of this, why don't you tell people uh, how they can find uh, the ebook and, and just you know, some of the mechanics of, of following up on our conversation here? Sure. Our book is called Dirty Little Secrets of the Mortgage Industry, and it can be found at www.insidermortgageguy.com. Okay, very good. All right, well, let's start at the beginning uh, where you talk about uh, the difference between mortgage brokers and mortgage bankers. People may not be too familiar with. What's the difference, and, and why would one use one or the other? Or tell us a little bit about the difference of the two. Well, under RESPA, which is the governing body of the mortgage industry, and that's the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act, uh, the landscape is defined into mortgage brokers and mortgage bankers. The only difference under that law is whether you have an in-house underwriter and the ability to fund your own mortgage loans. If you have that ability, you're called a mortgage banker. Now, you could be a two-person shop with an underwriter, a loan officer, and your own warehouse line, and you would have the same privileges and status under RESPA as the largest banks in the country do. Lacking an underwriter and an in-house underwriter, you're known as a mortgage broker. It's a, oh, I don't know, I think you're kind of, uh, let's just say that the law defines it that way, and it's very easy to have the same protections and status as the biggest banks. From a consumer's point of view, or somebody who's going to get a mortgage, is there a reason why you should go to a broker versus a banker? Well, the theory behind a mortgage broker is that they have a multitude of sources to take your to shop your loan and try to get the best rates and the best you know closing costs or fees as we call them that are out there. If you walk into a true bank, you know I'm not going to name names on this show, but everybody knows who the biggest banks are. Um, you know, you've got that bank's loan programs and whatever rate they're offering that day. If you walk into a mortgage banker, they may have that big bank and 20 or 30 other banks and other sources as well. 
And then mortgage brokers have access to those same variety of sources. They just don't do the underwriting in-house, nor do they fund the loans. So in theory, a mortgage broker or a mortgage broker with a warehouse line, so it's, you know, again, under RESPA makes them a mortgage banker, uh, they have access to a wealth of sources. And theoretically, if they're good at what they do, they'll find you a better deal than walking into just one individual bank. Now, you say in theory. Why is that not true in practice? Well, uh, the reality is that, uh, like the old 80-20 rule, uh, most loan officers at mortgage broker firms or mortgage banking firms, uh, they settle down to where they do 80% of their business with 20% of the lenders that they're approved with. Uh, some of them get lazy and just don't shop the universe, if you will. Uh, some of them get used to great service or they get particular favors for sending bigger volume you know, to a particular lender. And so that's why I say in theory. I'm not sure it's always practiced. Now, you say favors. I thought that RESPA was uh, basically stopping kickbacks or any kind of special favors. They really That's illegal to do. Is that saying it's going on anyway? Well, a kickback is illegal, but under RESPA, uh, it's well known in the industry, uh, the key word here is what's known as a yield spread premium, or YSPs in the industry, and it is a legal rebate. It is not an illegal kickback by any means, and it is still uh, very common in the industry. So ex- explain, because this is a big part of what you talk about in your ebook, is the yield spread premium. Explain exactly what that is and, and how a consumer, uh, knowing what that is, uh, can, can guard themselves against paying too much. Well, the quickest way to net it out for uh, the layperson is to say that a yield spread is a back-end rebate that all mortgage brokers and all mortgage bankers get for taking a loan or locking a loan, if you will, with a particular lender. Um, if they can, if the loan officer can do what's called upsell the interest rate, and what that means is tell you that the best rate is X when they really do have a better rate. And if you're not a savvy consumer and you accept their definition of what the best rate is, then they have upsold the interest rate to something better than the best rate, and they get a bigger yield spread premium or, again, these legal rebates that we get back from lenders. So is that – I mean, it sounds to me like mortgage uh, broker is uh, supposed to be representing the best interest of the uh, borrower, not necessarily the lender. It just sounds like this yield spread premium is – trying to put money in his pocket, but not necessarily getting the best deal for the borrower. Is that, am I misinterpreting something here? No, you're not misinterpreting at all. Um, both, again, both mortgage brokers and mortgage bankers receive this yield spread uh, under an interesting, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, okay. uh, exemption. Uh-huh. Uh, under RESPA, mortgage bankers don't have to disclose their yield spread premiums, but all mortgage brokers do have to disclose it. It's just a little bit of a conflict of interest, as I'm sure you recognize. Uh, if they want to make more money, they have to try and sell you an interest rate that isn't the best interest rate that they have. Isn't that the whole idea of RESPA in the first place, was to avoid conflicts of interest and have all these things be out in the open so there weren't kickbacks and so on going on? Uh, it was, uh, but everybody needs to understand that from the largest banks to the mortgage bankers to the mortgage brokers, uh, yield spreads are very much a part of every transaction that takes place today. Okay, so what as a consumer are you supposed to do? Now that you know this yield spread premium exists, are you supposed to demand that your uh, mortgage banker um, reveal it to you, or uh, what can you do about it now that you know it exists? 
Well, knowing it exists is the first step to empower the consumer without question. But knowing it exists and finding it in the paperwork takes a little bit of uh, detective work. Uh, if you don't know about it, obviously, then you know you're not going to know to look. And even if you do know to look, you'd have to be the best uh, Sherlock Holmes in the world to find it because where it's disclosed, where it's supposed to be disclosed, is in the good faith estimate, which is one of the many disclosures that every borrower signs at the time of loan application, along with the truth in lending statement and you know another inch thick um, worth of paperwork. But oftentimes the loan officer will not disclose it on the yield, I mean on the good faith estimate. And their rationale for doing that, if anybody asks them, is RESPA says if the yield spread premium is known, in other words, if they know what it's going to be at the time of loan application, it has to be disclosed. Loan officers frequently lock interest rates after the loan uh, application is taken, and therefore they can claim that they didn't know what it was going to be. However, RESPA is very clear that if you don't know what it is, you're supposed to put it on the good faith estimate and show that it's going to be in a range of from 0 to 4% or 0 to 3%. Uh, but even that is lacking. And the problem is there's just not enough people in the enforcement arm of RESPA uh, to go out and police that across the United States. So as a good, if you're taking a look at a good faith estimate, where should you look for what line? Is it actually going to say yield spread premium, or where is it listed on the, the form that people can, can find? It'll either say yield spread premium or it'll say YSP, and if it's if disclosed properly, it'll be one of those two, and then it'll say like 0 to 3%, um, and then there'll be a 0 beside it because 0 being the one that they claim that they you know knew at the time. It's typically not under a particular numbered series, but it's in the lower right quadrant of the good faith estimate is where it's supposed to be disclosed. So if you have a range of, say, 0 to 3%, you're talking about big numbers here. I mean, 3% of a $500,000 loan or some huge amount is, is real money, right? So That's exactly that, right. That exact dollar amount is never actually disclosed explicitly? It's just, they just give a, a, a vague range? Is that the way it works? Under the letter of the law, RESPA, if they lock the interest rate at the time of the loan application, they are supposed to disclose it on the good faith estimate. I, I don't know what the number is, but I'd guess that 50% or greater are not shown on there because everyone knows that there's not that much enforcement of it. Where it does have to be disclosed, if you're a mortgage broker, is on the HUD-1 settlement sheet, which is one of the papers that you sign at the closing of the loan. So it does have to be disclosed there. Again, remember, mortgage bankers, from the big banks down to the, the true big mortgage banks, do not have to disclose it ever. So would you say as a consumer you should only deal with people who are going to be disclosing the yield spread premium? Um, not necessarily. I believe, you know, I, I was both a mortgage, I, was, I, I worked for a bank, I worked for a mortgage bank, and I worked, you know, as a mortgage broker, so I've covered the gamut of all the different ways you can be a loan officer in the industry. But I will tell you again, I think the best people, the, the good mortgage brokers will shop your loan and find a better deal for you than is possible at the other places. Um, there are ways to know what the mortgage bankers and the banks are making. I, in my book, I developed a uh, what I call a contract of understanding that I highly recommend that uh, people buying a home or refinancing a mortgage uh, have the loan officer sign regardless of what institution they're at and it requires full disclosure. Now, the mortgage banker doesn't have to sign that contract. It's not a legal contract under RESPA. But if they want 
uh, sign it, which is an agreement to full disclosure, then obviously they can push away from the table and take their business someplace else. Mm-hmm. And so you would normally recommend that people do that? Uh, I would. I, I just don't know why anyone in this day and age, with all that's gone on and with the uh, looking glass that the industry is under, would not want to do full disclosure. And I would think consumers, certainly with uh, the information in my ebook, uh, would be empowered now to know what's going on. It would put them in a better position. Is uh, this whole yield spread premium and the incentives it created uh, part of the reason we got into the mortgage mess that we're in now? Uh, it is, in my opinion. It's certainly not uh, one single issue that anybody can point to. And uh, let, let's go on the record here. Uh, it starts at Wall Street, and it goes to the largest banks and to the mortgage banks and to the mortgage brokers. Everybody you know, got wrapped up in the, uh, uh, the profits that were there to be made in the industry over the last five years, and the, uh, the bubble that burst starting in August of 07 was the result of it. Okay, we're actually going to go to a break now. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is Ted Krager, uh, who's known as the Mortgage Advocate. Uh, he's come out with a new ebook uh, called uh, The Dirtiest Secrets in the Mortgage Industry, and we'll find out many more of these dirtiest secrets when we're back after this. talk about his money call us toll free 866-472-5790 and talk to the experts we talk money all the time voice america business technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business on cio talk radio we talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do as well as its risks heard every wednesday at 9 a.m central 7 a.m pacific sunjo gall interviews business leaders and other experts that are shaping the way we use technology to learn more about the show visit www.ciotalkradio.com keep up with the changing world of technology and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. All we talk about is money. Call us toll-free, 866-472-5790, and talk to the experts. We talk money all the time. Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ted Krager, uh, who's known as the Mortgage Advocate. Uh, he's uh, come out with a new ebook 
called Dirty Little Secrets of the Mortgage Industry. Welcome back to the show, Ted. Thank you. Uh, we were talking about the uh, causes of the uh, mortgage meltdown. So when you have a chapter on that called Understanding the Subprime uh, Meltdown, why don't you just briefly kind of explain how we got into the situation we did. I mean, supposedly there are regulators looking over this thing, the Federal Reserve and the banking system and all these regulators looking at these mortgage lenders all the time. How did things become unglued so quickly here? Well, um, not that much different than the dot-com bust when everybody thinks that there's no downside to doing things, you know, then people quit paying as close attention uh, to margins or profits, you know, as perhaps they should. Um, in the mortgage world or the debt markets, of course, uh, are what's behind that. Um, it was about 15 or 20 years ago that Congress um, asked for a higher percentage of home ownership in the United States. We were at about 34, 35% of Americans that owned a home back then, and uh, they thought that the American dream should be achievable for a bigger percentage of the population. So they went to... Um, the biggest banks in the United States, and there's a lot of uh, foreign banks that you know do lending in the United States as well. But anybody who did lending here uh, as a big bank, they asked them to, and I use this word in quotes, relax their underwriting guidelines. What that means is let people qualify for mortgage loans that wouldn't have qualified under traditional underwriting guidelines. Mm-hmm. And in doing that, they kind of took the uh, the lid off Pandora's box, if you will. Because there's a reason that, uh, you know, uh, whatever the percentage of the population is, uh, that are renters. And there's nothing against people that rent by any means, but if people didn't have a down payment and didn't have good credit and didn't have a way to prove their income, traditionally, you know, they weren't allowed to get a mortgage. And so all the guidelines were relaxed, and they started off with uh, no down payment programs, and then they started, then they came in with, um, uh, what they call teaser interest rates, which start off lower, and then they, they have a time frame where they know they're going to go up. And then they came in with no income verification loans. And then they decided on top of all that that people didn't necessarily have to have great credit. And each of those by themselves was not necessarily a recipe for the disaster we saw. But then all of a sudden, um, for whatever reason, and I, this comes under the, the greed factor that I call it, Lenders started offering all of those ways, all of those relaxed guidelines in one single loan. So all of a sudden, people with poor credit didn't have to prove their income. A lower or artificially low interest rate and no down payment were allowed to buy homes. Essentially, there was no risk for them to get into a a mortgage loan like that because if they walked away, they had nothing to lose. And as long as um, houses appreciated, real estate appreciated, uh, people had home equity lines, and the house would go up in value, and they would uh, tap into the ever-growing equity to make up for a shortfall in income or for whatever caused their spotty credit before, and they turned their homes into ATMs. And when when real estate quit going up, you ended up with the debacle that we saw that started in, Ju- in July and August of 07. Did you see this coming in, in the early 2000s when this was going on? Did you warn people that uh, this is a recipe for disaster? I did not. Uh, you know, I was never a fan and never did uh, even one single loan under what's called the option arm program, which was the uh, no down payment, not not necessarily great credit, low teaser rate type of a program. 
Uh, I never did one because uh, they had the potential for negative amortization or for the balance of the mortgage to actually increase each month if people chose to make, you know, the, the smallest of four payments that were offered. Uh, I just never thought that that was appropriate. Uh, you may recall that about four years ago, we hit the lowest interest rates that we'd seen in 40 years, and 30-year fixed rates were down in the range of, uh, I believe we got down to a low of somewhere around um, four and three-quarter, five percent, and the option arms were very popular back then, and it just didn't make any sense to me to not give people, let's call it a five percent, 30-year fixed rate, even when they could get a teaser rate a little lower than that, uh, knowing that the... Uh, the 30-year fixed rate could never change and that the other one could change pretty dramatically. So, no, I didn't see it coming. I don't think anybody did. Um, there was a, uh, a white paper report that was put out. It had a couple of Wall Street names attached to it uh, that saw it coming, and I believe I first got that paper in my hands in May of '07, and they started showing the number of option arms and the number of those that had no down payment. And the number of those that had what's called piggyback loans, which is a first and a second to achieve 100%, and it showed how many of them were going to start coming due uh, in the third quarter of 07. Um, like most people, I have 2020 hindsight. I wish there was uh, there were a lot of things I could have done to profit from the debacle that was coming, but I just didn't realize the impact of it as most people didn't. Now, some people would say that the system was set up uh, to kind of feed greed because the mortgage brokers and bankers would make these loans, they'd get their yield spread premium, they'd get their fees up front, and that would be sold. And if it blew up later, they weren't around to have any collateral damage. Is, is that the, the, kind of the, the way the system was set up made you know, this disaster we've had kind of ripe for, for happening? Well, Jordan, in reality, uh, mortgage brokers uh, were under the, uh, con- the misconception, which you just stated, that once the, uh, they got all their money up front, including the yield spread premium, and the loan closed and they walked away with their check and they, were, um, they weren't liable. The reality is if they went back and read all the agreements they signed with the lenders they got approved to sell with, the lender had the right to push the loan back on them under certain circumstances. But typically that was for you know, what was called an early payment or a first payment default or fraud. And you never get away from fraud. I don't care who you are or how far down the road it is that it's discovered. But there were very few first payment defaults or even early payment, first or second payments. And so if they got more than 60 days down the road, they were pretty much off the hook unless fraud was proven. Uh, mortgage bankers and the big banks, that's a whole different story. You know, the, the loan is there, so to speak, that can come back to haunt you for the life of the loan until someone pays off the mortgage or refinances or whatever. Was there a lot of fraud? Because people are saying today that there was a lot of fraud, that people, uh, the mortgage brokers were making up numbers and increasing people's income, their credit scores, and doing all kinds of things, just putting in phony numbers so that the loan would go through. How much was, was going on that was fraudulent, you think? I've never seen a statistic put out by anybody that would tell me it was 3% or 5% or whatever it was. Um, you know, the fraud took on two forms. There were the people that just out and out lied uh, you know about um, you know how much money they made, and that's why the the stated income loans were sometimes known as liar loans. Yes, and so they just made it up, and the loan officer would counsel them into the amount of money to put in there to make the traditional debt to income ratios work, even though those were 
they were there, but they really weren't there, if you understand what I'm saying. You know, if 10000 a month didn't qualify them, they'd try 12000 If that didn't work, they'd keep inching it up until until they were within what used to be traditional underwriting guidelines, and then they would state their income as that much. But that's not what stated income loans were for. Stated income loans were created for people who typically were self-employed or made a lot of money and just didn't want to give up their tax returns. But they were supposed to at least be in the ballpark, at least really close you know, to the actual amount of money that they made. And so there was there was a lot of that that went on. I, again, I don't know what the percentage was. The other kind of fraud that you hear more about that seems to make, you know, the uh, 6 o'clock news every night was the one where a loan officer and an appraiser kind of got in cahoots with one another, and they started getting inflated appraisals, and property values were shown higher than they really should have been, and it allowed speculators to do, you know, purchase and flips, uh, you know, buy a home for two hundred grand when it was really only worth one sixty, and put it on the market a few months later and sell it, you know, for a lot more than they paid for it. Uh, that required at least two people, you know, to be to collaborate to commit that fraud. And I think there was a fair amount of that that went on. So where were the regulators in all this? The people overseeing the mortgage brokers these fraudulent uh, applications, and you say there's some fraudulent appraisals going on. Where were the regulators in all this? That is the million dollar question, Jordan. Uh, that the newspapers and Congress and everybody seems to be asking at this point in time. Again, I said it earlier that, you know, when things are going really well and it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, there's any end in sight uh, to the fun that everyone's having, um, nobody, either people look the other way or they don't realize there's anything going wrong or, go, you know, going on that, that uh, was outside the guidelines. It's only when you start having pain and when you have a bubble that bursts like we did that everybody comes back and starts pointing fingers. Unfortunately, that just seems to be the way it is with a lot of things around um, in the United States. Your Chapter 3 is uh, who will hold Congress accountable for the mortgage debacle. Now, they've just passed a bill that's supposedly going to clear all this up. Is that the way they're becoming held accountable by the bill that was just passed into law? Um, they're trying. And I think it's uh, Senator Charles Schumer and Senator Chris Dodd and Representative Barney Frank that seem to be leading the charge in Washington to pass some kind of reforms to make somebody pay for the mess. Uh, I don't think that uh, the most punitive things that are going to be passed are going to be done before the elections in November. Uh, the mortgage debacle has become a great political football and it's ammunition that I think uh, neither candidate wants to necessarily come down too hard on anybody prior to the elections in November. What is the result going to be of the housing bailout bill that uh, basically put the Treasury behind Freddie and Fannie, uh, that created this fund to prevent 400,000 or so foreclosures? Is this, in fact, going to turn around the situation in a major way the way they're, they're saying it will? Jordan, I'm not an economist. Uh, everybody has their opinion. I've read the Wall Street Journal every day for 20 years, and I know what I read. Uh, you don't find a lot of people in a gray area here. You either find people that think this is the worst possible thing that Congress could have done, and some people think that it's the right answer. In the short term, I believe it's the right answer, because if they had let Bear Stearns fail, let's say, if the Fed hadn't done something that they had not done since the 1930s, I think it was, which was lend money to a non-bank entity, which they have the powers to do, but they just hadn't done it. Bear Stearns would have gone down, and the domino effect, the repercussions would have had far-reaching um, you know, impact. 
Um, you know, you've got uh, companies as big as UBS and City and Merrill Lynch and so on that, you know, every day you're seeing another eight $8 trillion or $10 trillion or something dollar bailout that these people are having to raise money, um, you know, to maintain the standards they have to as a bank, uh, the, the balance sheet, if you will. Um, I and a lot of other people that uh, you read in the press uh, believe that free markets should be allowed to be just that, that they will get rid of the excesses. Uh, there's no doubt that if uh, they allowed this to run its course without, um, you know, any intervention, that um, my opinion is the bottom in the market, the real estate market, would have been a V-shaped bottom that would have been uglier than it has been so far, but it would have been over quicker. Uh, I think it's just prolonging the inevitable, but the bottom line is it's going to be more of a U-shaped bottom, in my opinion, uh, to where we don't get into the really, really, you know, worst-case scenario that, that some people have talked about in the newspapers. Okay, very good. We're going to go to a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is uh, Ted Krager, uh, who's known as the mortgage advocate. He's got a new e-book out called The Dirty Little Secrets of the Mortgage Industry, and we'll be back after this. All we talk about is money. Call us toll-free, 866-472-5790, and talk to the experts. We talk Talk money money all the time. time. Voice America Business. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. What I want to be when I grow up by Johnny Mike. Dad, it's John. I got the promotion. We'll call him John Jr. You'll speak over 500 million words in your lifetime, but none of them will be as important as the words you use to tell your six-year-old he has cancer. CureSearch.org connects you to the most comprehensive research and advice on childhood cancer and to other families who know exactly what you're going through. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. Sell, buy, buy, sell. All we talk about is money. Talk to an expert. Call now. now. Toll free 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. Uh, my guest this hour is Ted Krager, uh, who's known as the mortgage advocate, an expert on the mortgage business. He's come out with a new ebook called Dirty Little Secrets of the Mortgage Industry. Welcome back to the show, Ted. Thank you very much. Uh, again, tell people how they can get uh, your ebook. Uh, the ebook is called Dirty Little Secrets of the Mortgage Industry, and it is available at www.insidermortgageguy.com. Now, in Chapter 5, you talk about interest rates versus the annual percentage rate. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, tell us what, what's the confusion there, and, and what should people know about the difference between those two? The annual percentage rate, or APR, uh, versus the interest rate is um, very misunderstood. Uh, I can tell you, after taking thousands of loan applications over my career uh, as a mortgage banker, I explain the APR to everybody, and most of them look like the proverbial you know, deer caught in the headlights. Uh, I think, personally, it's, it's fairly straightforward. The APR is nothing more than a mathematical expression of the cost of the loan over the life of the loan that includes not only the interest rate that you pay, but the fees or the closing costs that you pay up front. And uh, that does not include yield spread premiums, by the way, which we talked about earlier. Uh, but the points, the origination fees, appraisal surveys, credit reports, uh, all those things that are in the eight and 900 series on a good faith estimate are the costs, and they do factor in. I tried to explain it to people like this. Think of all those costs as prepaid interest charges plus the origination fee or the point. And if you take all that into account, then clearly the cost of the mortgage is higher than the simple interest rate that you get. So are you saying that what people should do is take all those closing costs out of the loan, pay for it in cash, because otherwise they're paying interest for many years on their credit report fee and their origination fees and all these other fees. They're paying interest on top of the fees. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, it's not legally interest, but it's it's uh, similar to interest in that it's just money out of pocket that you pay to get a mortgage. In an ideal world, people would bring their checkbook to the closing and pay for their closing cost in cash, as you just said, and only have the interest rate to worry about. In that case, the interest rate and the APR would be exactly the same, uh, although not it, it would be the same on the um, the documents, but their true out-of-pocket costs would still be the same thing. They're not financing those costs in, in all cases, but they still are out-of-pocket those. Therefore, the total cost would still be reflected if you calculated an APR. But you're saying that's not the way most people do it. They roll the closing costs in and therefore are paying interest in effect on their closing costs for many years. You know, Jordan, it's pretty expensive to buy a home in, in today's economy, and even over the last five or six years, it was the very rare exception where I had a borrower came in with a down payment, and with uh, the closing costs and enough money left over to fix up the house once they moved into it. And therein lies the temptation for people to finance the closing costs, uh, either by getting a higher loan or making a smaller down payment, either way you want to look at that, uh, or by using the yield spread premium, in this case, in a positive way. Uh, a loan officer could, to, could tell them if they're tight on money, I can increase the interest rate and we'll get a bigger yield spread premium, and I can use that to offset your closing costs. That is one of the instances where a yield spread premium is used the way that it was really intended. So is that something, if that's offered to you, that's something that people should take them up on if they don't have enough cash to cover their closing costs? Absolutely. So why don't you just go through that again? You go into a a closing, you don't have a lot of extra cash for closing costs. Explain how the broker would, would offer... He's kind of giving up a piece of his yield spread premium to help you cover closing costs. Is that the way it works? Correct. Giving up a piece of his or her yield spread premium, which you don't know that they're getting in the first place, I might add, uh, because it's not something that's talked about unless it's used in the way that we just discussed. But if somebody's going to make a, uh, let's say, a 10% down payment on a $200,000 home, that's $20,000. They're also going to have to come in with, on average, anywhere from one5 to 2% of that uh, in closing costs. And so, you know, you're adding another several thousand dollars there. 
at the loan application if the borrowers bring it up, or if they don't bring it up, a good loan officer will spot very quickly in the assets that they declare on the loan application that they really just don't have much money. They can then talk to them about bumping the interest rate up because I get something called a yield spread premium, and then they explain to them what it is. And they can say, we can use that to offset your closing cost. Now, do they use 100% of the yield spread premium uh, to give as a credit to the borrowers? In some cases, they do, and in some cases, they don't. And unless the borrower, borrower knows how much the yield spread premium was, they'll never know whether or not they're getting 100% of it credited against their closing costs. This is kind of like a real estate broker sharing a piece of their commission to make sure the deal gets done. Is that a similar idea? Correct. And so that's something people may be familiar with. Correct. But you're saying that that's the, the right way to do it, but you're saying that that often is not the way it is done. There's, there's more abuse than there is helping the customer in this case. Yes. Um, let's take an example. Um, uh, there was a gentleman that uh, died a couple of years ago. I'll see if I can think of his name in a minute, but he was kind of known as the statistician of uh, the mortgage industry and the real estate industry and the title industry. He spoke at national conventions for all three of the industries uh, on a regular basis. Um, the statistic he showed one time was that 90% of people that have good credit, he calls them A-paper borrowers, purchase a home at the mortgage company that their realtor tells them to go to. Now, think about the impact of that. Why would 90% do that? They're taking the realtor at face value, that the realtor has done their due diligence, and that the realtor only works with very credible professional loan officers. That's the way I read that statistic. And I can tell you that that pretty much was true with the loans I did that I got as referrals from realtors. I actually got most of my referrals from financial planners. Uh, that's the way I built my business. But the same um, assumption of trust, you know, was there by the borrower. So if a loan officer got people like that who assumed that uh, their financial planner or their CPA or their realtor had been using this particular loan officer for years and years and years, was that they were going to get a great deal there. And they might, but if the loan officer were inclined to say, you know, six and a quarter percent is the best interest rate I've got today on a 30-year fixed rate, if the borrowers haven't done their homework and gone on the Internet in the many places that are available or made phone calls to other mortgage companies, how would they know that? How would they know that there's five and three quarters or six percent in the market if they hadn't done their homework? And the sad thing is, is most consumers don't do that. So they walk into this loan officer's office referred by realtor, financial planner, CPA, whomever, and the loan officer says, I've got six and a quarter today on a 30-year fixed rate, and they say, that's great. So the loan officer takes six and a quarter, they lock that interest rate, and they get a great big yield spread premium by selling them an interest rate above the best rate that they had. Nobody's ever the wiser to that unless the borrower knows where to look for it. You know, on a mortgage broker, it should be, uh, you know, on that uh, uh, that HUD-1 settlement sheet, as I talked about, but in the mortgage banking world, it's never disclosed anywhere. Now, supposedly under RESPA, uh, a real estate agent or a financial planner cannot get a kickback, in effect, for referring a particular uh, mortgage company. Is that That is correct. In fact, what's happening? No. No, it doesn't go back to the realtor or to the financial planner. I mean, I'm sure it does in rare cases, but that's a... That's a huge violation of RESPA there and one that they do go after and prosecute. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just suggesting that the loan officer makes a big check. Yeah. So what, what does the realtor get out of it? 
the realtor knows that the people that they, uh, the loan officers that they send their clients to, are going to get a um, a an, ex- an efficient um, closing, meaning. They're going to be treated professionally. The loan's going to close on time. If there's any problems, the realtor's going to know about it. Uh, it's going to be a good transaction, a good experience for the borrower. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the loan officer acted as a fiduciary in the best interest of the borrower. You mentioned this fiduciary issue earlier. Uh, I say it in my book. Uh, matter of fact, it's one of the excerpts that is pulled out on the website that mortgage brokers and mortgage bankers have zero fiduciary responsibility to the borrowers, but I would bet if you took a poll, most borrowers assume that the mortgage broker or the mortgage banker are acting as a fiduciary in the transaction when, in fact, they're not. Yes, indeed. Chapter 7 of your book is uh, how to get the best deal every time on every mortgage. Uh, What are some of the ideas uh, you have that people can shop around and get good deals? Well, first of all, they need to be armed with uh, the information in Chapter 4, 5, and 6, and that's the difference between interest rate and APR, what yield spreads are, and so on. Armed with that information, they need to go to whoever their realtor or their financial planner told them to go to. What I would suggest is that they make a phone call and that they uh, apply by telephone or with a web application, which almost everyone has now, and then they get a good faith estimate and they get it emailed or faxed to them. And then they, uh, you know, take that to two or three other places as well and pit them against one another. Let them compete for your business. Uh, not a very popular thing to say in the industry, uh, as I'm sure you recognize. Uh, but, uh, you know, in that same chapter, uh, I talk about this, uh, I think it's in Chapter 6 or 7, where I talk about going to the mortgage broker and mortgage banker associations of each state and making sure that the ones you're calling and that your realtor or your financial planner referred you to uh, are good guys. There's no complaints on the Better Business Bureau, Dun & Bradstreet. Uh, there's various ways you can check it out, uh, you know, from the websites of the broker and banker associations in each state. And then once you get that list narrowed down, then you apply in two or three places and uh, fax your your uh, good faith estimate, you know, from number one to number two and to number three, and um, you'll end up seeing some people sharpen their pencils a little bit. So you you can get the good faith estimate without having to actually commit to it, then? Absolutely. Because most people don't think that. They think once you've got to that point, you're pretty much locked into that. Correct. That's not true. Okay. <laughs> so it, it requires a little bit of work on the part of the consumer. But in the end analysis, if they follow that procedure, they'll probably get a better interest rate, and they'll certainly shave a few hundred dollars, if not a thousand dollars or more, off of their closing costs. What kind of leverage or, or leeway, I guess is the right word, do uh, mortgage people have in shaving costs? What, what are some of the things that can't come down? What are some of the things that can come down? Uh, every loan officer has a different set of restrictions based upon their employer. Now, if you're applying for a loan with the owner of a mortgage banking company or someone fairly far up in the uh, in the hierarchy there, they'll have more uh, leverage than others will. Uh, most mortgage companies, whether brokers or bankers, have a minimum amount that the loan officers can shave. But if they walk into their manager and say, I'm going to lose this loan if I can't cut another $200 off my closing costs, it's amazing how quickly that $200 can get shaved. You just have to ask for it. 
what do you think about using uh, uh, websites that say that they're going to shop for you? I mean, LendingTree.com comes to mind. There's, there's a lot of things like that where they say they're going to have brokers, uh, I mean, banks compete for your business. Is that a legitimate way of having this work for you on an automatic basis? Uh, before I answer that, I will tell you that I think LendingTree came up with maybe the uh, the best uh, you know slogan in the industry: "When banks compete, you win." Uh, it, it's a great uh, thing if, if it's if it's practiced. LendingTree is actually uh, a pretty decent model from a consumer standpoint because banks do compete, and therefore the broker doesn't have. I'm sorry, the borrower doesn't have to uh, you necessarily do all that shopping themselves. Uh, the only thing I don't like about uh, the Internet models, if you will, is they're impersonal. And when problems come up, it can be really cold in cyberspace. You can't just uh, get in your car and drive across town, uh, you know, and get in the face of your loan officer if you have a problem or a question or the interest rate wasn't what you were told or there was a surprise at the closing and the closing cost versus what they quoted you. Uh, it's very difficult to deal with the uh, Internet models in the event that there's problems. Uh, I've always thought that, you know, it's the largest transaction in most people's lives, and they want to deal with the human being face-to-face, not a voice on the telephone. Yeah. And I, there was a report out by uh, uh, Deutsche Bank oh, probably six or seven years ago now, maybe it was longer than that, in the dot-com craze, that uh, they predicted that over 50% of mortgages would be done over the Internet uh, by the year 2006, I think it was. Yeah. Last time I checked, there were still less than 20% that were being done there. Uh, people may buy cars, and they may send flowers and that sort of thing over the Internet these days with great regularity. But when it comes to the largest transaction in their life, most of which is gobbledygook to them with all the forms they have to sign, um, I think that they want a human being to hold them by the hand and walk them through it. And just so you know, there's a much higher percentage of refinances done over the Internet than purchases because there's no contract, there's no earnest money that's at risk, there's no deadlines. That's just between you and the computer. That's a little bit different. Okay, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is Ted Krager, uh, who's known as The Mortgage Advocate. His book is called Dirty Little Secrets of the Mortgage Industry. And we'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, 401ks, investments, refinancing. We can help you. Call now toll free. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business. Jordan Goodman has created the Money Answers Network to put at his listeners' fingertips the very best personal finance products and services that he has found in his 30 years of research. If you have a money question, Jordan Goodman has a money answer. To find out more, go to www.moneyanswers.com. The Money Answers Network features top products and services in virtually every area of personal finance, car buying, and leasing, college financing, credit debt, financial planning, investing, insurance, legal services, mortgages, retirement planning, wills, and more. Only businesses that have demonstrated excellence in both their products and services are invited to become members of the Money Answers Network. The public can sign up for membership in the Money Answers Network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources. To learn more, visit www.moneyanswers.com. Get ahead with Money Answers. Achieve total wealth management. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Rory Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, right here on Voice America Business. Three-Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a value-based approach to comprehensive wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. 
Take your first step down the road to financial independence. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Rory Diefendorf, Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Money, money, up to date business and financial news. Money, money. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866 472 5790. 866 472 5790. Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, and my guest this hour is the mortgage advocate, uh, Ted Krager, uh, who's come out with a new ebook called Dirty Little Secrets of the Mortgage Industry. Uh, welcome back to the final segment of the show, Ted. Thank you very much. Again, uh, just tell people last time how they can uh, find out about uh, the book. The book, Dirty Little Secrets of the Mortgage Industry, is an ebook, and it's available at www.insidermortgageguy.com. You have a chapter on self-employed borrowers. What are some of the tips that people should uh, look at there if they're uh, you know, pretty much self-employed for a long period of time? Uh, not a very popular uh, loan available for them anymore. It was called the uh, no-income or stated income, no-doc loan type thing. Pretty much gone away. There's a lot of demand for it, though, from people that earn a lot of money and self-employed people uh, that just don't want to disclose their income to anybody but the IRS and their CPA. I suspect we'll see a comeback, but at this point in time, it's uh, much more difficult to get one of those loans. So if you're in that situation, what should you do? If you are, in fact, self-employed and you're not going to be working for a company, what should you do? Bite the bullet and give up your tax returns. Uh (laughs) Aha. So if you have legitimate income, it's fine. It's just a matter of not being stated income is basically it. Correct. Okay, your next chapter is on uh, realtors and uh, builders and mortgage companies and so on. What are some of the things people should look for there? Well, we talked earlier about the realtors. Uh, Realtors have the best intentions in the world, but they fall into traps like most of us do or routines. And when people don't complain, you know, they don't complain about the service they got when they applied to the mortgage company they were referred to by the realtor, then the realtor assumes it all is well. Uh, We've had enough conversation here on this call. But you kind of know that that's not necessarily the case right now. Um, Builders always have their own mortgage companies. Uh, There's a price to pay. I'm not sure we have enough time to get into all that, but uh, when builders tell you that they've got a great deal on the mortgage, it usually comes because of the cost of the house. So is it general not a good idea to take the the deal offered by the builder? Uh, I never saw one that I couldn't beat. Uh, but when people buy houses and they're looking at having to put up uh, curtains and all the things that go with brand-new homes, it's more expensive than buying an existing home. Uh, they start looking at how much money they have in the bank account. And uh, one thing the builders' programs do is they offer them a way to get in with less money down. Typically, though, at either a higher interest rate or with the price of the house uh, jumped up a little bit. So you're saying in that case it would be better... Um, to buy the house and get separate financing, and you're going to pay a lower rate and, and save money over time that way? In almost every case. But, again, if they're tight on money, the builders offer a great deal. Um, in your concluding chapter, you have some specific websites uh, that you think people should go to take a look at to compare rates. What are some of the websites you like the most? Uh, bestrate.com. LendingTree. Best rate or rate rates? Bestrate. Singular, okay. Bestrate.com. LendingTree.com. 
those are the only two that come in off the top of my head, but I'm sure if people go Google. You have e-loan as well. Find a, a number of those. You have e-loan as well. That's another one. And e-loan, yes. Right. Um, and then tell people a little bit more about uh, what else, in addition to the e-book, they can find at InsiderMortgageGuy.com, your website. That contract of understanding that I talked about is really important if they're going to deal with a mortgage banker or a bank because the contract of understanding is an agreement between the loan officer and the borrowers that the loan officer will tell them what the yield spread is going to be, even if they're a banker and it's not disclosed, and that they will get that yield spread premium as a credit against their closing costs. You have to know what to ask for, especially at a banking shop, but it gives them the knowledge to know what to ask for. As we come to a close pretty soon here, why don't you kind of sum up the current situation? And we have a very tight credit crunch going on here where it's much more difficult for people to get loans than in the past. But what are some guidelines uh, that can help people get good loans in the, the credit crunch environment we're in today? Well, the sad reality, Jordan, is that only about half of people uh, that could qualify for loans a year ago can qualify in today's environment. We're back to an environment of about 20 years ago where people had to have good credit, a down payment, and proof of income. And what I say to that is what a concept. You know, we wouldn't have the foreclosure rate and the debacle we have if those were the only people that had bought homes over the last five years. Um, I'm sympathetic to uh, the people who can't afford it under the current restrictive uh, old-school environment, if you want to call it that. Uh, But the reality is that's why... Uh, we used to only make loans to people that had great credit and a job and uh, a down payment. So um, uh, what, isn't this to some extent the banks kind of slitting their own throats? I mean, by making credit so tight, it's making the value of homes go down, making people default and have foreclosures and so on. It's, it's a certain way, you know, adding spin to the cycle here. Very much a catch-22, without question. They're adding to the problems, but, you know, if you were a bank right now and uh, the percentage of defaults and foreclosures were as high as they were. Uh, I can only imagine being in Monday morning board meetings at banks right now wondering how many millions or billions of dollars they're going to have to write off this quarter. So you don't see any particular end in sight here. I mean, some people think the worst is over. They've written off some like $500 billion or so. You don't think that's near the end then? I think there's more to come. And a very little-known fact that the public doesn't know um, is that uh, – most of the problems came because of the three one arms that were done in '04 and '05. They came, you know, set or reset in '07 and early part of '08. There's no such thing as a four one arm, but there were five one arms that were done back then as well. We have a other, another whole round of these coming. Not as many of them, but another round of them coming when the five one arms come set starting in the middle of, of 2009. Very good. Well, it's really been fascinating. Uh, my guest uh, during this hour has been uh, Ted Krager, uh, who is called The Mortgage Advocate. Uh, his book is called uh, Dirtiest Secrets in the Mortgage Industry. And it will certainly help you in understanding all the different ways to avoid getting taken and deal with the new reality of the mortgage business. Thanks so much for being on the show, Ted. Thank you. And we'll be back again next week. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.